there are a number of times in, uh, in my life where the, the Lord has shown that he is totally in charge of the details. So many, in fact, that I've forgotten a number of them, but also so many that I cannot ever forget that he is the God who knows all things. And I want to um, <clears throat> rehearse a testimony of something that God has done in our church that was just, to me, one of those really powerful instances of God showing that he's in charge. And it was related to how Dan ended up being on our staff. <clears throat> some of you heard this testimony um, some time ago, but many of you don't know it. Uh, you might not know that I've known Dan for almost two decades. I was his youth pastor when he was in high school, and I spent two years serving at that church. And um, the Lord then moved Heather and our family off, and Hannah was born, and then Ellie, and we were in Texas being part of a church plant, and then seminary, and about a decade went by that I hadn't seen Dan. I didn't know he was in youth ministry. I didn't know he was pursuing seminary. I didn't know he was engaged to be married. Um, and I was at a clergy conference, and all of the priests were processing in, and he was there and saw, saw me in there, and after the service, he came over and said, Mike, what's up? What have you been up to? So we sat down, we had coffee, we caught up, and we pledged to stay in touch. So I got home and sent him an email and just said, Dan, so great to see you. Let's stay in touch. Um, you know, here's my contact information. And I sent it and then I forgot that I'd sent it and I got busy. And as life, you know, will, it happened and I got distracted. So three or four more years go by. By this point, um, Trip Prince, who was our associate pastor, had, he had been discerning whether or not he was called to a different church and he was leaning against it. And I was praying against it. And um, uh, really, so it surprised me when Tripp said, you know, uh, Ray, uh, we've, we've really prayed about this and we're going to go. And I went, oh no, okay, well, I blessed him to go. But then I went back to the Lord and I said, okay, God, this is a big hole in our staff. Tripp was doing all sorts of stuff. What are we going to do? And I kid you not, within a week, maybe two, God knows, I don't remember, but God knows exactly. Within a week or two, I get an email from Dan that starts out like this. Hey, Mike guess what? I just received your email from like three or four years ago. It got hung up in my church's server. And uh, what's going on? So I called him and he said he had quit his job at the church where he was. He, his wife was about to finish nursing school and they were going to move to Boston where Gordon Conwell Seminary has the main campus. She was going to start working there and put him through his last year of school. And I said, I got a different idea. How about you come down here? We have a hospital named Wolfson's. How perfect is that? And Gordon Conwell has a branch here and you can come and be a seminarian, finish your last year here and then come on the team. Now, that, and that's how I got here. So it's just super awesome. And that's one of those instances where God knows all of the details. And he, it's not hard for him to set up an email four years ahead of when he's going to know, and then he knows that he's going to need it. We didn't know any of that. Trip, I don't even think Trip was on the staff when that email was sent. It was that far in advance. He knows all the details. And our text today, Psalm 139, it'd be helpful if you take a look at that. Turn, turn to Psalm 139. It's right about in the middle of the Pew Bible. I didn't write the page number down, so if somebody gets it, shout that out. Um, Psalm 139 is awesome. It is awesome. All the Psalms are great. What's awesome about Psalm 139 is how sweeping it is in its scope. Some of the Psalms only address a specific focus. This is big. And this is a Psalm of David, and it's in key sections. And if you look at verses two through four, it starts out with David talking about God's, as Dan said, God's omniscience. He knows all things. Think about this. He knows that you are sitting right now. He knows exactly when you're going to stand up. He knows your thoughts from afar. He knows your path. 
He knows when you lay down, when you stand up. Even before a word is on your tongue, he knows it already. David is saying these kind of things, and think how big that is, that God is in control of that level of knowledge. Tozer, A.W. Tozer, in his book on the attributes of God, said, God knows all things and cannot learn anything. It's impossible for God to learn, because that would imply he didn't know something. He has it all. Now, is your reaction to that positive or negative? It could go kind of either way. You know, do you see that as like a big eye in the sky spying on you or, um, or uh, T.J. Eckelberg, the ophthalmologist in The Great Gatsby on the billboard looking over the Valley of Ash, symbolic of God's judgment on the, the debauchery of the Roaring Twenties? Is it like oh, God is watching to smite, right? Is there fear? Is there hesitation? Big Brother is watching. It seems like maybe that's the way that David is about to take it, because if you look at verse 7, he says, where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? The thought of God's knowledge of us and the details of our lives is so unnerving. Maybe, maybe I should run away, but then he's like, well, where could I go? I can't get away. Now, the, there, are, there are some personality types that don't like this psalm. The atheist hates a psalm like this. The atheist, the man or woman pretending God doesn't exist, doing everything in their life to, to ignore those annoying hints of God's presence, which come every moment. He's constantly present with us, and he knows things, so he's dropping these hints left and right. And the atheist, as C.S. Lewis, can't be too careful about what he reads, right? You don't want a, a thought about God to slip in in something you're reading. You have to really censor your life to, to filter God out of it. And a psalm like this just says he's in all of it. He's everywhere. The moralist, the person who is trying to live a squeaky clean life on the outside, right? Building his case to stand before God and say, aha, I've earned this. I deserve it. And claim something, some, lay some kind of a claim to God and his blessings that somehow we deserve something. The moralist doing that is pretending that his insides are clean as well those thoughts, those, those thoughts that he doesn't think anyone knows until he comes across Psalm 139 and realizes, ugh, God sees everything. The moralist, like the atheist, does not like this psalm. The religious talker doesn't like this psalm either. The religious talker is the man or woman who likes Christian culture, church life, likes theology, loves to debate and discuss theology, is really good at, quote, playing church, really good at praying out loud, able to kind of move in and out of the Christian community very easily, but is caring most about the approval of people more so than God. And so a psalm like this says, God is your audience. He's hearing all of it, not only externally, but internally. And so Jesus himself would say in, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, be careful of practicing your righteousness in order to be seen by others. Those who do that have already received their reward. And then he says something so inviting. He says, but you, when you pray, go into your room and close the door and pray to your father in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus is inviting us to go into that secret place, that vulnerable place, like the colic for purity that we pray. It's vulnerable to think all thoughts are open to you, all desires are known, but then to invite God into that place. And Jesus is speaking of a secret to be had in the secret place. 
Now, David in this psalm is favorable to God's omniscience, to God's knowledge and thoughts. Um, so verses one through six, he, he says, God knows everything. And then verses seven through 12, God is everywhere. He's everywhere. He's right next to you. He's sitting right next to you. Can you feel him? Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. Doesn't change the truth that he is everywhere. He is right there with you all the time. So verses seven through 12, and there's, in fact, if you notice in the text, there's actually a space in, in the text. There's a, there are breaks um, that, that kind of highlight these changes. So God knows all things. God is everywhere. And then verses 13 through 16, David starts to speak about God as our creator. He knows us because he made us. He says in verse 13, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And then that verse that we all know and love, I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. We're recognizing not only does he know all things and is everywhere, he's created all things and he's done it wonderfully. It's a fearful thought almost because it's so sweeping in its scope. Wonderful are your works, he says, my soul knows it very well. David likes the thought that God created him and knows him so intimately. He says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, I think is a reference to the womb. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. Now, let me pause there and go theological on you for a second. If before God even started to create you, way long before conception, God had already in his book written all the days of your life. He's decreed all that. Here's what that means about the cross. That means that's plan A, not plan B. When God thought, I'm going to create people, and I'm going to give them free will so they can be free to love me, I also know they're going to reject me and rebel. And I'm going to have to solve that problem and redeem them. So I'm going to go myself and die for their sins on that cross so that I can win their hearts back, and they will be then a redeemed people who choose to love me and are able to because of what I have done for them. All that was worked out, and then he went, let there be light. And he began the the creation process. Before any of them happened, your days were already written in God's book. He's that much in control of things. And it's like, it's mind-blowing to think about it. Now, the skeptic, the atheist maybe, will say, well, if God is so great and knowledgeable and in all the details, then why is life so hard? Why is there suffering? Well, what we have to assume then, if God is all-powerful and he's good, that he actually has a purpose in it, that he's going to use it for something, that maybe, just maybe, this life is not about what we think it's about. If I was in charge, I would make this life about this, a relationship with God, enjoying him. It goes very smoothly. All relationships are perfect. And then we don't have to die. We just kind of translate into glory with him. I like that plan. That's not his plan. His plan has to do with working on some of those inner parts about character, it seems. It seems like God is going to hone us and prepare us, and he uses the hardships to do it. You, know, you all know the story of Joseph in Egypt. And it's interesting, every time I read Genesis, I find it interesting that the Joseph story, and he's not one of the first three patriarchs, <clears throat> Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is Jacob's son, Joseph. Joseph gets chapters 37 to 50. There's only 50 chapters in Genesis. He gets like 30% of the whole thing. And and I think the reason is not so much that it's more important than Abraham or Isaac, but rather it's bigger in volume to get our attention. Pay attention to this. Joseph 
goes through a really difficult, long learning process that teaches us something. He has a gift. He doesn't use it correctly. His brothers resent him. He's sold into slavery. He gets taken down to Egypt. He's purchased by Potiphar. He's, he's in Potiphar's house. God raises him up again. He's falsely accused. He's put into jail. He's in there for several years. God raises him up again. Now he's in Pharaoh's court. He's serving. Eventually, he uses him to interpret a dream that Pharaoh has about seven years of famine, and God uses this. Actually, he does two things. God is doing two things at least. One is he's sparing all these lives from a famine by getting Joseph in a place where he can do this. And the other thing is he's bringing all of the, the offspring of Abraham into Egypt where they're going to be slaves for 400 years after Joseph so that then God can redeem them out of that and take them into the promised land. It is so big what God was working on. And so Joseph comes to the very end in chapter 50 of Genesis and he says to his brothers when his father dies, fear not, I mean no harm to you. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. God was doing something bigger. And when we get on the other side, things will look so different. We'll look back at the suffering and we'll go, ah, that makes sense. That's what he was doing. Why couldn't you have told me that? And he'll probably say, because if I had, then what I was doing wouldn't have worked the way I wanted it to work. Trust me, in other words, I've got the details. God is in the details. God, God's active use of his knowledge is interesting too. In verse five, God hems me in. Yes, we are free uh, people. We can do, we have free will. We can do certain things. And yet God reserves the right to set up some edges. He hems us in. He protects us. He, he, he does use uh, our lives and point history in a direction. It's not going randomly. God is directing it even though we don't always see it. He's hemming us in. Verse 10, his right hand holds us. It upholds his right, his strong hand. So he does this in a competent and strong way, guiding us. And in verse 13, that idea of him forming my inward parts. Don't think just your body, you know, medical problems. You know, he does know how that works and we can pray to him for that and he does bring healing and wisdom to doctors and all that sort of stuff. But your inward parts are also your soul. Those deeper recesses, the parts of you that you don't even know. How appropriate and important and necessary it is that God knows those inward parts too. Because as 1 John 1.7 says, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Even the sins we don't know, the ones that are way down in deep, the atonement covers those too. God's death, Christ's death on the cross for us is able to heal us because he knows us totally. Now, what do we do with this? What's our response? What should we do? Well, I think David's response is helpful. We can just copy what he does. Look, look down at verse 17 and 18. He comes away with this conclusion. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them? If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. So basically what he says is, I cherish the thoughts of God above all things. I wish I could count them, but they're greater than me. David has chosen to occupy his mind with God's greatness. He's occupied with the thoughts of God. He pursues God's thoughts. So prayer then becomes not just saying, God, I'm doing this thing. Would you bless it? It becomes, God, there's this thing happening. What do you think about it? Maybe I'll sit with you for a little bit and listen. What do you think about my plan to do such and such? Well, God speaks. God will lead. God has thoughts about your plans, and he will gladly share them if you'll give him time to listen. David does that. So let's be people who listen 
and cherish God's thoughts. And David is such a passionate and an emotional person that as great as God's thoughts are to him, when he looks at people that don't like God or God's thoughts, he's incensed. He says, I I have hatred for those who hate you, God. And that bit in the psalm makes us uneasy. Like it's just such hard, strong, violent language. But he also recognizes, maybe I'm not balanced on this. So then in verse 23, he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me. In other words, I have hatred for those who hate you, but search me. Make sure that's in balance. Make sure that's right. Make sure all my ways and thoughts are right. How should I be about this? It's one thing to acknowledge that God searches. Verse 1. You have searched me and known me, he says. It's an entirely different thing to invite it and say, search me, God. I long for our church to get to that place where we wouldn't just mentally acknowledge that he searches all things, but that we would welcome it, that we would say, come, come into my life, come into the secret place, God, go into that dark place in my life that's not right, show me, show me what's off in my thoughts, in my words, in my ways, my habits, all of these things, and lead me in the way that's everlasting. I want to conclude by um, quoting Charles Simeon. He's an Anglican clergyman and preacher in the 19th century. And I, you know, studying different things throughout the week on a series called Occupied with Greatness. Um, You'll understand why I thought his quote was good, and I'll close with this. Beloved, has God from all eternity occupied his thoughts about you? And will you not turn your thoughts to him? Delay not. I will not say, don't rob him of his glory. Rather, I say, don't rob yourself of happiness. Not only does God know you and your thoughts and your ways, he is good and he loves you. So don't fear that. Press into it and welcome it. Pray those last two verses as your prayer. Let's do that now. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.